From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we prepare our hearts for Holy Week and Easter by exploring and meditating upon the seven last words of Jesus with Father James Martin. Along the way, we'll talk about the Pope, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, and Father Martin's work as the chaplain for the Colbert Report. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Reverend James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and the editor-at-large of America Magazine. He's the best-selling author of The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Between Heaven and Mirth, and Jesus, A Pilgrimage. His debut novel, The Abbey, A Story of Discovery, was published in October 2015. Father Martin has written for many publications, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's a regular commentator on the national and international media, and he has appeared on all the major radio and television stations, including NPR's Fresh Air, Fox's The O'Reilly Factor, and PBS's NewsHour. Father James Martin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, let me start out, since some of our listeners may not be familiar with the Catholic tradition. When we say that you're a Jesuit priest, can you give us just a quick overview of what that means? Sure. The most famous Jesuit these days is Pope Francis, which uh, tells you something about our spirituality. But uh, we're a Catholic religious order, uh, which is like the Franciscans or Benedictines or Dominicans, which means we take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and we live in community. Uh, The Jesuits were founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius Loyola, and they're probably best known in the West, or at least in the United States, for their educational institutions or for our educational institutions. Colleges like Georgetown, Boston College, Fordham, uh, Santa Clara, all the colleges named Loyola, of course, and high schools all over the place and middle schools. uh, So we're known for that. We're known for the Jesuit Refugee Service. We're known for being missionaries and writers. So it's a a very, um, I would say, historic order, and once again, uh, Pope Francis has really put us on the map in a a big way. Well, and you mentioned that Jesuits are often known as being educators. If our listeners know you, they probably know you best because you were, for example, uh, the official chaplain of the Colbert Nation. They may also know you from your your vast social media presence. You have over 400,000 followers on Twitter, etc. Do you consider those types of things to be part of the educational mission that you are that you're uh, that you're given or is that separate from being an educator? Uh, well, it's actually all part of education. More broadly, it's part of evangelization and part of uh, just spreading the word, broadly uh, defined. St. Ignatius Loyola, in his founding documents, uh, talked less about education and more about a broader concept that he called helping souls. And so, really, Jesuits have done all sorts of things to help souls. We've uh, run parishes. I have a friend who works with refugees and. Uh, Sudan. I have another friend who runs a Jesuit high school in Micronesia. Another friend of mine is a, a physician. And of course, we have pastors and retreat directors and teachers and things like that that people are more familiar with. But 
the work in the social media and the work even on television and the Colbert Show and places like that, that's basically going to where people are to help them and to, to spread the gospel. So there's a great Jesuit phrase, finding God in all things. That's a kind of summation of our spirituality. And that means that God can be found anywhere, and so we, we try to help people encounter God wherever they are. And the, the context for our conversation today is the publication of your most recent book, The Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. And so you, you mentioned earlier that Jesuits are educators but also authors. This is one of many books that you've written, but I wonder if you might give us, first of all, the context out of which this book arose. Sure. So the seven last words are really the seven last phrases or sayings that Jesus said on the cross on Good Friday, at least as recorded in the Gospels. There may have been more. And they have been the basis for liturgical services or prayer services in churches, both Protestant and Catholic Catholic churches, over the years. Maybe a little more common in Catholic uh, churches. And I was asked to preach the seven last words last year at St. Patrick's Cathedral by Cardinal Timothy Dolan. And basically, they take each of those seven last words or phrases, and people probably know them, like, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Into your hands I commend my spirit. I thirst. All these things that Jesus said on the cross. And they mix the reading of those uh, gospel passages with prayers and music and uh, meditations. And so I was invited to give the meditations. And uh, as I was writing the meditations, which with this overarching theme of Jesus understanding us, that's the kind of theme of what I preached about, I started to think, you know, this might not be such a bad little book. And so after the Good Friday was over, I started to look at what I had written, and, and I started to expand it, and it forms the basis for this new book, Seven Last Words. Is it a normal thing for a priest to be asked to preach and reflect on all of the seven last words at once, or is this an unusual thing? Well, I thought it wasn't uh, until I started asking around uh, recently. Most of the seven last words services that I've been to in Catholic churches are very ecumenical, and they'll have seven different people. So they'll pick, say, an Episcopal priest to reflect on the words, uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then they'll have a Baptist minister preach on the word, I thirst. And they'll have a Catholic priest preach on the word, uh, you know, woman, there is your son. And it's, it's sort of mixed up. When, you know, among the uh, different denominations, when Cardinal Dolan asked me, he asked me to do all seven, which prompted a Jesuit in my community to say, all seven? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, as if sort of taking pity on the poor people who had to listen to me for three hours. Well, and so as you were preparing to to write these reflections and these meditations, Tell us a little bit about what you did in terms of a spiritual practice, what you did in terms of preparation to to get in touch with, with kind of what you wanted to say here. Some of the spiritual practice and preparation I'd already done, uh, not only as a Jesuit for 25 years and, you know, meditating over these passages for years and years, I've actually, you know, my whole life. But I had written a book on Jesus called Jesus of Pilgrimage that came out a year or two ago. And I had spent a lot of time thinking about the crucifixion and about the events of Good Friday. So I really, that was a significant part of the book. And I'd also taken a tour of the Holy Land and visited the places where they happened, uh, specifically in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But for this, I, this, in order to sort of focus on these particular phrases, 
I prayed over them over the course of a week and allowed God to speak to me through my prayer and raise up different uh, insights that I might have missed before. And it did come to me that I, I really wanted to stress how each of the seven last words shows us really Jesus's uh, humanity. Of course, he's divine at the same time. But I think that these words really are a window into his humanity, and they can help us to feel closer to him, which, you know, can, can deepen our relationship. And, that, and that's the subtitle of the book, um, An Invitation to Deepen Your Friendship with Jesus. So it was really, you know, it was a kind of combination of work that I had already, already done, a little bit of the pilgrimage that I had done, and then meditation specifically uh, to prepare for this, uh, these sermons. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest, and he's editor-at-large of America Magazine. We're discussing his most recent book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. Well, a moment ago, you mentioned this distinction or this contrast between the human side of Jesus and the divine side of Jesus. And that's something that actually you make a focal point in in one of your chapters, your meditation on on the way that Jesus relates to his mother Mary. But I wonder if you might talk for a moment about this distinction between the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. It's a very complicated topic. And in fact, it is a traditional mystery, as we say in the Catholic Church, it is something that we'll never be able to understand. Jesus is fully human and fully divine at all times. And it's, it, really defi- it really defies description. But we, we see, I think, elements of both in, in the Gospels, in his life. So in terms of his divinity, of course, we see the great deeds that he did, the, the works of power, uh, the miracles, uh, the signs, as they're called in the Gospel of John. So all the great miracles that people know the healing miracles, the nature miracles, stilling the storm and raising people from the dead, and not just Lazarus, but the son of the widow of Nain. Um, and, and then there are indications of his humanity when he, he cries at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and, and certainly on the cross, you know, saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There's a sense of feeling of distance from the Father, and I think the difficult thing in talking about this is that you can't separate one from the other. So you can't say, well, he's human in this situation and divine in another. You can't say that, well, when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, he's divine, and when he's working in the carpentry workshop in Nazareth, he's human. He's actually human and divine the whole time. And, you know, the disciples had a hard time with this, so why wouldn't we? And the disciples had the benefit of Jesus right in front of them. And so I meditate that on the uh, meditate on that in the book, and... And try to sort of invite people to see uh, events that that speak very strongly about his divinity and his humanity. I think I focus a little bit more on the humanity uh, in this book because I think that's what, to me, that's what comes up more in Good Friday. You know, his physical suffering, his emotional suffering, and his spiritual suffering. Well, when we look at people and they tend to overemphasize one or the other, so I've I've encountered believers who think very strongly about Jesus as a human being and as a moral teacher, but feel very uncomfortable with with talking about Jesus' divinity. I've also encountered, you know, I grew up in the South and I encountered a lot of people who wanted to talk about the divinity of Jesus, but were very uncomfortable talking about Jesus' humanity. Why, in your experience, do you think that people have such a polarization around these these sorts of ways of talking about Jesus? I'm really glad you asked that question, because I think that, that comes 
at the heart that comes to the heart of the the difficulty well it's natural in a sense to prefer one or the other i think people who prefer the divinity uh, you know they 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 like the idea of jesus as powerful jesus who can do anything which he can of course uh, jesus who can heal people and but there's something that makes them uncomfortable about the the earthy jesus the jesus who you know could get short with his disciples and say you perverse and faithless generation how much longer will i be with you uh the jesus who says my god my god why have you abandoned me uh the jesus who you know was a human being and who who grew up and he got sick you know we have to think of him as with a human body he got tired uh he he felt very passionate emotions and i think there's something that seems in a sense almost uh you know denigrating or kind of embarrassing about that but that was the whole point i mean this is you know god became human for a point he didn't he didn't play act at being human he wasn't pretending at being human and i think that some of the things that scandalized people back then you know that god would become human scandalizes us now too the other side i think is much more common uh where people say well i really admire jesus but all that stuff about the miracles and raising from the dead and in the resurrection that that that's just ridiculous but that's part of jesus's life and you know a, a significant part portion of the gospels are concerned with the miracles and other indications of his divinity you know both sides i think feel uncomfortable with with a part of jesus but we need to accept the fact that you know we need to accept the whole jesus not the jesus of our creation this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and the editor-at-large at America Magazine. He's the author of the new book, The Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Reverend James Martin, Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine. We're discussing his most recent book, The Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. A moment ago, you mentioned that sometimes when people think about the humanity of Jesus, it creates a sort of scandalized uh, response. And, And I wonder... When we talk about the humanity of Jesus, particularly when we talk about Jesus' relationship with Mary, when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, we're really talking about a God that is born and dies. And I wonder if if you could speak a little bit about what that limitation that the Christians believe that God has chosen to bring upon God's self, what that limitation tells us about our understanding of the divine. That's a great way of phrasing it. I never thought about it that way. Limitations. Yes, he, he was limited in some way by 
his human body. Uh, no, for, so, for example, he couldn't go everywhere in Galilee at all times. Right? He's limited in that way. But I think, to me, it's a, it's a beautiful indication of how much God loves us because ultimately he becomes vulnerable. Uh, I mean, Jesus enters the world, God enters the world in the most vulnerable state imaginable, a little baby. You, you can't get any more vulnerable than that, you know, a baby who can't talk or take care of itself, himself or herself, and totally dependent on Mary and Joseph for his care. So very vulnerable, and God leaves the world in the most vulnerable state possible, you know, a naked man dying on a cross. It is a great sign of God's desire to be with us. That's how much God loves us. God loves us so much that God is willing to make himself vulnerable and human and, as you say, limited uh, in order that we might approach God. So it's, a you know, the old saying that, you know, you can never understand someone unless you walk in their shoes. This is what God is doing. Now, God already understands us, but it's, he's enabling us to understand him. And it's his vulnerability that enables us to do that. So I think it's quite, it's just very beautiful. Well, another thing that you point out uh, throughout these meditations um, is the is the way in which, and, and this comes out in two places that I saw, and maybe there are others that you can instruct me about, but when Jesus is speaking to the thief on the cross, Jesus says in this moment of extremity when Jesus himself is dying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then later when when Jesus is also expiring, he has he has the he has the moment where he looks at Mary, his mother, and at the disciple Peter, and he says, "This is your son. This is your mother." Uh, and 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 so he's caring for those relationships in those moments. And what struck me is that what we're seeing there is Jesus, even in a moment of death, acting in a pastoral fashion. And I I wonder what what does that what does that tell us about about what we should be doing even in our own moments of extremity with regard to how we think about and care for others? Well, that you can help people even when you're weak and even when you feel weak. Uh, there's Jesus, as you say, on the cross and still ministering to people. He's helping the good thief understand that there will be paradise that awaits him. There's also a message to us, too, that, that paradise awaits us for those who believe in him and you know ask for his forgiveness as the good thief does. And he's helping his mother and the beloved disciple by giving them one another. He prays for his executioners. You know, very interesting. Someone pointed it out to me recently that when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, most people look at that as him forgiving his executioners, which he does. You know, he's, he is doing that. He's also praying for him. That is a prayer, Father, forgive them. So he's, he's, he's uttering a prayer for them at the moment of his death, which is extraordinary. And so, it's a, once again, it's a reminder that even in our weakness, our brokenness, our limitations, our physical pain, that, that we can always continue to minister to people and be compassionate. It's, you, know, it's a high, you know, Jesus sets a very high bar to follow, but he's, he's very clear about what we should be doing. There's, there's no doubt what we should be doing. Well, I, I want to pursue that for a moment because I've had some guests come on the program and, and they've done scholarly work around the question of forgiveness and they're very critical of the, the interpretation that you've just given. And so let me push back for a moment and say sure. Jesus has been tortured and Jesus has been broken and Jesus has been degraded and yet he's he's put up as this model to just forgive and forgive and forgive. 
what what does that say to victims and is there a danger here in using that kind of of imagery around around extreme circumstances well i think there is a danger i think the danger is a kind of facile oh just forgive you know without really kind of thinking what about what has been done to you um or excusing people from doing things or uh you or me being the person to tell someone you should forgive. So that's the danger, that it becomes easy. One thinks of it as easy and just something to sort of put into action, and then it becomes almost empty. You know, or you, uh, you, know, you ignore the pain or the struggle that people go through, and you kind of set that aside and say, well, you just need to forgive. Absolutely, so there's a danger in it. So, you know, when someone has been wrong, they need to, to really look at it and process it and grieve it and, you know, if, if necessary, uh, stand up for themselves as well, right? I mean, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, it's like, say, hey, a wife is in an abusive situation. They just keep putting up with it, you know, forgive, forgive, forgive in that way. Um, and so it's important to have a sense of sort of personal autonomy and respect for yourself, right? That's, that's the first thing. By the same token... Um, there's a danger that we say, oh, you know, forgiveness is impossible, so you should never try for it. I mean, I, in my book, I tell these stories of two people who forgave. One, the father of a, a child who was killed by a, a drunk driver. The friend was the drunk driver, and he forgave the, the guy who was driving. And two, a woman who forgave the, the person who murdered her sister, brother-in-law, and her sister's baby. Right. So I picked two extreme cases on purpose to remind people that these are real-life situations. And in each case, and I really believe in every case, at the end when forgiveness is incorporated, it frees, it frees the person. You know, it frees you from resentment of, against people. So I think that the danger is just as grave on the other side where people are told, oh, you can never forgive, it's impossible. But that, that, that is... You know, that's what Jesus holds out to us as a goal, right? And he says multiple times in the Gospels, how many times should you forgive your neighbor? You know, 70 times 7. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. No. So, so that's, that's the tension. The tension is not to sort of make it easier, facile, but also not to just dismiss it out of hand. And if, if I've heard you correctly, one of the things that I heard you saying was, was that this can never be something that is imposed from the outside. We can't say to someone, oh, you must forgive, but rather forgiveness has to be this gesture that comes from the person. Did I hear that correctly? I think so. Now, it's a grace. I mean, I really think that forgiveness is a grace that God gives us. I think that a person can be invited. But, you know, I'm going to give you an extreme example. If someone came to me and said, God forbid, you know, someone murdered my child, the first thing I, you know, would say would not be, well, you need to forgive them. I mean, you know, that, that's cruel. But uh, if someone comes to me and says, you know, um, this, this thing was done to me, uh, my business partner cheated on me, or, you know, I had a friend who betrayed me, and I've been holding on to that grudge for 25 years, and it's eating me up. You know, I would say then, you know, have you thought about forgiveness? Have you thought about uh, you know, where that is in your life, because really, you know, as I said, this is not, this is not me, this is not Father Jim Martin talking, this is Jesus talking. And so it, it does need, it is part of the Christian worldview, uh, and so it does need to be incorporated into that worldview in some way. And I really do think in the experiences that I've had in my own life where I've been able to forgive somebody, it's very freeing. Well, and this, Jesus knows that. 
this brings about one of the most beautiful moments that I found in your book, Seven Last Words, and in this chapter on forgiveness, where you talk about this forgiveness as a grace that comes from God, and you, you conclude the chapter by saying, so you may think, well, I can't do it, and you're right, you can't, but God can. And if I'm hearing you correctly, that's what we're hearing in, in that moment with Jesus when he's saying, Father, forgive them. He's, he's imploring and he's including God in this gracious act of forgiveness. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, that's a great that's a great insight, right? And and he he's making this prayer uh, for for these people. But I also say that you know it's very hard for some people to forgive. You know, particularly grave sins. I understand that. I mean, we all we've all been sinned against uh, gravely, and you know, there's some really hateful things that people do or can do to you. Uh, and and I think that there's an insight from the Jesuits. Uh, St. Ignatius Loyola, he was the founder of the Jesuits, who said that sometimes we don't have the desire to forgive. We really don't. It's just not there. But we wish we had that desire. We wish we were at the place where we wanted to forgive. And Ignatius says, even if you have, it's a great phrase, the desire for the desire, that that's enough, that God can work on that. If you have the desire for the desire to forgive, that God can start with that and God could sort of gradually move you to having the desire. So it's very freeing because I think people feel stuck. And I think just recognizing that the desire for the desire is a is an opening for God, is an invitation, is, is really helpful for people. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Reverend James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and the editor-at-large of America Magazine. We're discussing his new book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, I wonder, as you have been preparing the meditations in this book and as you've been reflecting and as you mentioned, your entire career as a Jesuit in some way has, has prepared you for thinking about and reflecting on, on these seven last words, these seven last phrases of Jesus. I wonder if you had a favorite or if you currently have a favorite and if that favorite phrase has changed over time. And maybe favorite is the wrong word here, but one that especially stays with you. Well, I do, and it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me or abandoned me? And I feel that it is because that offers the clearest window, I think, into Jesus' humanity. There's two ways of understanding this. One, that he's quoting the entire Psalm 22, which is a psalm of thanksgiving and, and deliverance. Or two, which most New Testament scholars believe, that he actually is expressing a feeling of distance from the Father. And I think it's more likely that it's that. Uh, and, and this is not to say that he doesn't believe that you know the Father exists, but he just doesn't feel the Father's presence. And it's a very, it's just very poignant. It's a very poignant moment, and he uses very formal language in the in the original Greek, and we still read it in the English. Aloy, Aloy, or Ailey, Ailey. Whether or not we use the Aramaic or Hebrew, it depends on the gospel. It's very formal. You know, it's Lord or or God. And just before that, in uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Abba. He says, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. So he goes from dad language, Abba is very familiar and intimate, to Aloy, which is very formal. And even that, even that language expresses his, 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 his feeling of distance. And I, I just find that really touching, that, that he would feel the sense of spiritual hunger uh, and and it's it's an intersection between Jesus' life and our own life, and it's an in, invitation, as I say in the subtitle, uh, an invitation in, in a, into a deeper friendship with Jesus, and an invitation to, for him to come into our lives as well. 
So I, I really find that one particularly powerful. Well, and if, I, if I'm remembering the book correctly, one of the things that comes out in your meditation on, on this, this sort of cry of abandonment, why have you forsaken me, you, you turn that around and you talk about, you know, we all fear death. And even St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Therese of the Little Flower, feared death, we find in her writings. But then you have this phrase, if I'm placing it correctly, you say, why would God ever destroy the relationship God has with you? Could something as small as death destroy that relationship? And that, that moment in that in the book just stayed with me. And I, I wonder if you might expand upon this a little bit because I, I think even today my, my young son was talking to me and, and said, Papa, where do we go when we die? What, what, what's going to happen to you when you die? So he, my four-year-old is even starting to wrestle with this notion of loss and, and distance. But I wonder, you, you seem to have a, a, a great assurance of comfort here. I wonder if you could tell our listeners about that. Well, it comes from just years of being in relationship with God and also as a spiritual director and as a spiritual counselor, hearing about God's relationship with other people. And God is in a loving relationship with all of us, and God calls us into a loving relationship in our lives. And it makes no sense to me that God would destroy that. Zero. It makes zero sense to me. Why would God say, all right, end. End of relationship. End of loving relationship. I'm going to stop loving you. You're going to stop loving me. End of loving relationships with your loved ones. Done. It makes no sense. It, makes, it, doesn't, it doesn't jibe with what we know about God. It doesn't jibe with what we know about Jesus. Uh, it, it doesn't jibe with the resurrection. Death does not end Jesus' life. And I, I often counsel people who come to me for spiritual direction to think, you know, use their minds. Does that make sense? No, of course not. And even St. Paul says, you know, neither death nor anything can prevent us from the love, can separate us from the love of God. I think that's that. I think that's part of what he means. So this loving relationship will continue in some way. Now we don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be wonderful and and you know an intensified experience of happiness and joy. But the last thing heaven means is that God just ends things. So I I I think that just comes from my own experience of reflecting on the way God is. And I'd like to ask you, what, why, did it, why did it strike you? I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. Sure. Well, I, so part of what we've been doing here at the Sunday Evening Club for the last several months is we've been working on a documentary on end-of-life care, death and dying, and the, and the way that faith communities minister to people in those, in those last moments. And so I, I was, I think, especially attuned to, to have that phrase jump out at me because it was so much in the spirit of what we've been trying to do uh, in terms of this documentary. So that was one reason why it stayed with me, but also because, you know, these are conversations that I've been having with my six-year-old daughter, with my four-year-old son. You know, we, we tend to be in, in our family very frank. We don't sugarcoat things. You know, I'm going to die. There will be a time when Papa won't be here, when Mama won't be here, but we believe in our faith that that is not the end of it. And and I loved so much the succinctness of how you said, you know, God is in relationship with us, and God has chosen to be in relationship with us. And why would that relationship be ended by something as petty as death? I found that incredibly liberating. Well, that's great. And, and you know, that's a big uh, topic in Jesuit spirituality, relationship, uh, personal relationship uh, in prayer and in your daily life with, with God. And I know that it's a very big part of a Protestant evangelical spirituality as well, a personal relationship with Jesus. And in the Jesuits, we uh, encourage people to recognize that, to notice that, to see how God is at work in your daily life, to see how God is at work in your prayer, and every, every way, in every way. 
And, you know, funny enough, there was a book that just came out called Dear Pope Francis, where kids write to Pope Francis. It was very moving. And there's one letter from a little boy who said, my mother has just died, I think, four months before. I think he was seven or eight, a poor little kid. Is my mother an angel? And I was very surprised at what Pope Francis wrote. I would have thought he would have written, oh, yes, she's an angel. She's flying around. And he says, no, (laughs) she's not. She's not an angel. She's your mother. She's still your mother. She's still your mother. She still loves you. She's radiant and happy and filled with joy and not struggling. She watches after you. She prays for you. She's, uh, you know, Pope was very funny. He said, uh, you know, she's happy when you're doing well, you know, and you're doing good things. You know, you're being a good boy, basically, but she forgives you when, when you're not. So it's this image of her retaining her herself, her identity, her personality, which I thought was very beautiful, and, you know, pretty much what I'm saying, that, that, that we, the, the person whom God created would not be destroyed. Why would God create some beautiful thing, mostly our relationship, but also ourselves, and end it? You know, that, that, uh, you know, can you imagine Jesus, if we look at the analog, which is Jesus, can you imagine Jesus on earth destroying something that is about love? No. And, and the resurrection, I think, is the great sign of this, that, 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 that love triumphs over hatred, that life triumphs over death, and that, and that we are meant to live with God in eternity. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny you should mention that, because that, that particular insight came just, through my own experience of reflecting on God's relationship with me and God's relationship with other people. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father James Martin, who's a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large at America Magazine. We're discussing his most recent book, The Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we work with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine. We're discussing his most recent book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. At several points in our conversation, you've used a phrase that I want to make sure that we unpack for our listeners. You've, You've talked about spiritual direction and being a spiritual director. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, it may not be familiar to everybody. Spiritual direction is a practice of helping people pay attention to where God is active in their daily life and in their prayer, basically. So it's different than 
pastoral counseling, which is more sort of problem-solving and helping people through difficulties and helping them see, you know, what God might be calling them to do. It's certainly different than psychology and psychiatry, which is looking at psychological problems. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But the spiritual director will talk to you about noticing where God has been at work in your life. And so typically there's two areas that we talk about. Where have you noticed God in your daily life? You know, where, where have you noticed, where have you felt especially moved or over the last couple of weeks? Usually one does it every month with a person that you see regularly. You know, where have you felt God really moving you? And where have you noticed God? And, and where, have you, where have you sensed God's invitation? At the same time, where have you noticed God in your prayer? What's been happening in your prayer? You know, you've, well, what have you been praying about? And, you know, maybe you've been praying about the readings for the week, or if it's Lent, maybe you're thinking about Jesus coming to the end of his life. Well, really, okay, well, what, what, what's been coming up? Have you spoken to God about that? Has God spoken to you in your prayer? Has a particular passage moved you? And you try to get people to notice. Now, an intense way of doing this is going on a retreat. You know, we, we Jesuits have retreat houses where people will go away for a weekend or a week retreat, usually in silence. And then we sort of lead them through certain prayer exercises, usually focused on the scripture, where uh, we ask people to kind of think about or even imagine themselves in the scripture scene. So spiritual direction is really about helping people to notice. And the, you're, you're there to kind of get out of the way. You're not there to say, okay, you know, God says this. It's more, what has God been saying to you? So... I really enjoy it. I, I, I do it a couple times a week with people that come to see me, and I just this morning before we talked had a guy in here for about an hour, and uh, I love it because it also uh, strengthens your faith because you can see where God is at work in another person. And sometimes if, if you feel like your faith is a little lukewarm or, you know, you're feeling like, well, you know, there's not a whole lot going on in my life spiritually, you can look at someone else and say, wow, this is, this is great. You really see God's presence, and that can really uh, sort of uh, buoy you up. I'm wondering, just to sort of shift gears slightly, but to stay in the same vein of of sort of the the pastoral moment and and reaching out to people who are on spiritual journeys, how you see this book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus, being received by non-Christian audiences? I mean, do you see this being a value to non-believers, to people who may uh, express their faith in a different tradition, say Muslims or Jews, or is this specifically for a Christian audience? No, it's for everybody, and that's why at the beginning I'm, I'm very careful about explaining what the book is and what the seven last words are, how the Gospels were uh, put together by the evangelists, and I, I assume nothing. I don't assume that people know a whole lot about Christianity, and I, I think that, you know, I, I would think that mainly Christians are going to read this, mainly the audience is going to be Christians. But I would hope that seekers uh, and doubters and even agnostics and atheists might be curious about the book because it is about Jesus, and Jesus is the great attractive figure these days. And I would hope that they, people who were curious, might say, "Well, let's see what he's talking about, and what what um, what these seven last words can uh, teach me." And also, what does it mean to have a a friendship with Jesus? That might be something that draws people in. So, so yeah, I wrote it specifically to be accessible to to everybody. Well, and I'm going to now get a little bit personal. I am a, I'm a former atheist, and I now am a believer, and I oftentimes have conversations with, with people who are non-believers, and I have deep sympathy for them, but they will sometimes ask me the question, so why should I believe? And I find that I don't actually have 
a way of, of articulating to them my journey from non-belief to belief. So mm-hmm. l- let me ask that question to you. So I'm sure that people have encountered you in all in all walks of their spiritual journey. Yeah. What what do you say to someone who is a non-believer who says to you point blank, why should I believe this Jesus stuff? Well, because I was usually it's God. Usually it's why do I why should I believe in God for the uh, atheist or the agnostic? Uh, and I will say almost all the time because you've had experiences of God and you you haven't recognized them. You haven't been encouraged to see them as experiences of God. This just happened uh, a year or two ago with a young man that came to see me, and we started to talk about different experiences in his life where he felt this overwhelming sense of peace or joy or invitation or insight. You know, And yet at the same time he was saying, oh, you know, if, if God only were to communicate with me or speak to me, and I said, well, why are you not saying that that's God communicating to you? You know, why, why are you why are you turning that down? How else would God communicate with you other than through your life and your your emotional life and and your sort of inner life? And I think for a lot of seekers, they have to realize that, as the old saying goes, that which you seek is seeking you. And once they can take that step and uh, you know let themselves think that perhaps that is God, then it's almost like a flood. Then they start noticing things. And then God, I think, particularly at the beginning of a person's spiritual life, is very active. God, I think, really hits us over the head with a two-by-four. And, and they're really aware of those kinds of things. So the first step is God. And then they start to get interested in Jesus. Then they start to say, you know, well, I have this image of God who's judging, or and I can't get past that. And I said, well, let's look at, let's look at another image of God, <laughs> you know? Let's look at Jesus. What do you know about Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. Why do you like Jesus? Oh, he's so compassionate. Well, what story do you like best about Jesus? Why do you think that is? Well, that's interesting. Do you think that uh, God might be speaking to you through that? Oh, sorry, I never thought of that. So that's how it works. It's just it's that's what spiritual direction is. It's getting people to notice. It's not hitting them over the head and say we should believe because that doesn't work because they've been told that a lot of times. It's come and see, as Jesus said, and that's what I try to help people to do to come and to see. What I what I really like about that answer is that that pulls us right back into this sort of central concept of your book, Seven Last Words, and this concept of relationality. We're not talking about, about uh, in the Christian tradition, a God that is an intellectual object, but rather a God right. that is a being that wishes to be in relationship. I, that's very, very important, I think, to, to, to speaking about this. Oh, absolutely. And you know the the ancient Greek philosophers, you know Aristotle in particular. I think his his highest ideal of God, he used to say that well, what's the highest activity a man can do or a person can do? Well, thought, thinking, right? And what's the what's the highest uh, sort of goal? Well, that's that's thought. So one of his images of God was thought, thinking about thought, right? Which is the kind of definition of abstraction. And no, we have a personal God in two ways. We have a personal God because he was a person. God became a person. But we have a personal God because we have a God who relates to us, you know, as human beings. And you can't get any more personal than that. You know, he, that's how much he loved us. So it is not an abstract God. And it also, it also as I say in this book, it is not a God who does not understand us. We don't have a God that's way up in the clouds, who's far off, who we say, oh, you know, we, maybe God will understand us. No, God understands us. Jesus understands us. 
more specifically, not only because he's divine and knows all things, but because he's human and experienced all these things. So that, that I think, in itself helps people to feel closer to Jesus. You know, Jesus went through all this. Jesus had people betray him. Jesus had people abandon him. Jesus experienced physical pain. Jesus experienced emotional pain. He cries at the death of his friend Lazarus. He sees his friends abandon him. He experiences spiritual pain on the cross when he says, Father, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So here's a here's the most relatable, approachable, personal God you could possibly imagine. So that that's an invitation to people, too. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine. We're discussing his most recent book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus. Well, I'll admit to something. I'm a follower of you on Facebook, and I follow you on Twitter. And one of the things that I notice uh, about your social media presence is that you really try and cultivate conversation and communication. So I'll, I'll notice that you oftentimes are posting somewhat provocative uh, articles or other sorts of things. And and one of the things that you say is no ad hominem, so no personal attack, and you, you restrict people to a, a sort of a two-comment limit. And then the responses just kind of go wild. And I wonder what your experience is sort of riding on the top of that of that tidal wave of response to these things that you're putting out into the social media landscape? Well, it's another form of evangelization. Uh, you know, I work at America Magazine, or America Media, as we call ourselves now, and we get a, a lot of uh, articles and videos and uh, news first, right? So part of it is just keeping people informed about what's going on, interesting things that are happening. But also inviting people to meditate on different uh, scripture passages. I'll put up uh, meditations and things like that. I find that social media is, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. I think the blessing is it can really educate people and open them up to new ways of thinking. You know, I was just at a talk last night. A woman said to me, I, I normally wouldn't say this, but since you asked, you know, thank you for helping me come back to the church. And, you know, she saw stuff on social media on my page that she liked. And, you know, so that's great. It's fantastic. The the curse is, you know, it it brings out a lot of the... Uh, anger and hatred in people, and people can be really mean. Now, fortunately, on Facebook, there's a little button for people who have a public page, um, which is ban and delete. So, you know, if if I say something and you know about you, and someone says, "Oh, you know, that person's a jerk, and I hate him, and he's a bad Christian," you know, I I can delete that. Now, if they keep doing that, then I can ban them. So, I can provide a space for charitable conversation, which I think is very important. And people need to be able to talk about these things. And also, a lot of young people experience or discover uh, or explore the church and spirituality through social media. That's how they do it. I mean, if someone wants to think about Jesuit spirituality, they're just as likely to sort of do a search and find something on Amazon or some article uh, and, you know, maybe find my Facebook page or something than they, as they are to go into a library and look up the history of the Jesuits or Jesuit spirituality. So so we need to be where people are. That's where people are. I always say to people, Jesus didn't sit around all day and wait for people to come to him. He went out, you know, and so we need to do that too. And he spoke to them in ways that they can understand and and in a medium that they could understand. And so that's that's how we have to speak to people. And today that medium, one of them is social media. 
Well, and when we when we think about going to where people are, uh, I know that many of our listeners will be aware that you were for many years the official chaplain of the Colbert Nation on the Colbert Report, right. and I, I wonder uh, if. As, as Stephen Colbert has, has left behind that persona and has now moved to The Late Show, I wonder, for our listeners, how has your relationship with Stephen Colbert continued? Has it continued? <laughs> and, and in what way has it developed? And, and tell us what being a chaplain to him really meant. Like, what, what did that actually mean besides just the kind of the, the, the gag on the show? Oh, well, you know, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I was on, I think over the course of seven or eight years, um, and I, he would have me on to talk about Catholic things, and it was a great uh, teaching moment, as we say in the church. You know, it was under the guise of being playful and funny, but we had some pretty substantial conversations about uh, income inequality, about Jesus, about the resurrection, about the papacy, about Catholics. And I, I thought this is great, you know, because this is where a lot of the young people are finding out, you know, uh, a little bit more about the church. Um, you know, it really wasn't more than that. Um, I wasn't, you know, coming every day to the, to the studio and, you know, counseling people. Um, you know, and we we were, we're friends, uh, I would say, you know, separate from that. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. He's a great guy. He's very uh, prayerful and thoughtful and intelligent. And I think he's one of the few people in the public eye that everybody says, all right, he's religious and he's intelligent. Because the stereotype, as you know, is, you know, if you're religious, you check your brain at the door, right? So I think he's a great role model for, for so many Christians. One of the things that I, I typically ask my guests towards the end of the interview is is what frustrates them and what continues to give them hope. And and a lot of times I'm talking to people who are in the public sphere, and so the frustration is, you know, I can't get this piece of legislation passed or something. But I'd be very interested, particularly in the context of your meditations around the seven last words you know, as you and and as we're looking at a, a very fractured political landscape, so you've got a, a foot in social media. You're a very public uh, Jesuit priest, and yet you're also a very thoughtful and meditative and prayerful man. And I'd be very interested in your answer as to what currently is frustrating you, and where do you see the the bright lines of hope in our current situation? Well, that is pretty easy, actually. I find this whole political season unbelievably frustrating. And I'm not a political person, I won't name names, but I, I, I cannot believe some of the uh, treatment and some of the language and some of the behavior. It's just it's unbelievable to me. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really rather mystifying. Uh, as for what I find hopeful, I, I, you know, my hope is in the resurrection, and I think one of the great messages of the resurrection is that nothing is impossible with God. That's, that's kind of the message of the resurrection, that God can do anything. And, you know, you look in the Catholic Church and, uh, you know, you look to see what Pope Francis has done. I mean, you know, three years ago, if you had told me that there was going to be a Jesuit pope who was going to shake things up and help the Church sort of embrace uh, its simplicity more and turn towards the poor and, you know, be more welcoming and forgiving and accepting, I would have said, well, you know, that's, that's crazy. I mean, what are you talking about, the Jesuit pope? But God can do anything. And that's the message of Easter Sunday. I mean, we've been talking a lot about Good Friday and, uh, and, and what that means, but Good Friday is meaningless without Easter Sunday. Right? I mean, suffering is not the last word. So the resurrection always gives me hope. Every day I think about the resurrection. Because, you know, every day there's some frustration. And you have to say God can work through this. God is more powerful than we can imagine. So that, that's my hope. 
Well, Father James Martin, I, I so enjoyed the book, Seven Last Words, and I, I'm, I will be sharing it with my family as we are preparing for Good Friday and for Easter. But I just want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been my pleasure, and I hope you have a happy Easter, too. Amen. We've been speaking today with Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. He's the best-selling author of The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Between Heaven and Mirth, and Jesus, a Pilgrimage. His debut novel, The Abbey, A Story of Discovery, was published in October 2015. We've been talking today about his most recent book, Seven Last Words, An Invitation to a Deeper Friendship with Jesus, published by Harper One. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Father Martin, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, when it's up, just let me know and I'll uh, tweet it around. I certainly will. Thank you so much. And have a, have a great day and a blessed Easter as well. Thanks. Great questions. So good to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, God bless. Bye-bye.